This morning's Advent reading is from Luke 1, and it's verses 26 through 38. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. This candle represents the hope that we have in Jesus. Well, good morning. My name is Braden. I'm a covenant member here at Providence Road, and I work for a ministry called Stumo that is a disciple-making ministry on OU's campus. Essentially, Stumo is trying to engage lost pockets of the campus to raise the next generation of spiritual leaders to fill churches like Providence Road in our city and across the world. And so I'm passionate about reaching our campus for Jesus in our city for Jesus, and the whole world for Jesus. And so it's an honor to get to partner with you and do that here in Norman. Today we are continuing in our series on Advent. And so last week, Josh preached on the Advent of peace. And as we just got a foreshadowing, today we are talking about another quality that is ours as we wait for the coming and the Advent of Jesus. I want to begin, though, with a game, okay? We cool with that? Thank you. Just a game to loosen us up, okay? I'm a little nervous. You have nothing to be nervous about, but we're all going to loosen up. The game is real simple, all right? The game is simple. I'm going to put a picture on the screen, and it's a picture that has to do with Christmas because we all love Christmas, and I just want your gut reaction. And so your response, be it applause, be it booing, whatever you feel, when the picture comes up on the screen, I want to hear it. So we'll start with an easy one, maybe a controversial one. Mm -hmm. I have to say I'm surprised. Way more cheering than I thought. Eggnog's a no for me. I think it's the name. I just don't, you, you lost me at the name. Eggnog, I don't want to try it. Here's the next one. Inflatable yard art. It sounds like we're those people. We're that house in the neighborhood. We're those people. Hey, I actually just clipped this link to YouTube or to uh, uh, Amazon. 
And so you could consider not tithing for all of 2024 to afford this if that's you. Let's see the next one. Ugly Christmas sweaters. Okay. Yeah, I don't know when this became the tradition, but I am about it. Every party, it's like, that's the only theme, but I love wearing my Christmas sweater. Here's the last one. Come on. Yeah, the loudest ovation by far for Buddy the Elf. Why? Because this is the greatest Christmas movie of all time, okay? And if you don't think so, Lord have mercy. No, Buddy the Elf, it's this incredible story, right, where Buddy, a human being, accidentally finds his way to the North Pole as a baby and then is raised among the elves and finds himself as a man in the North Pole, and he's like, well, I don't belong here. And so he goes back to reality, back down to, real, to the real world in search of his father, right? And Elf is this hilarious movie as Buddy is learning that reality is not like the North Pole, right? Life isn't all spaghetti and syrup. And over and over and over, Buddy has to learn that reality just doesn't live up to the North Pole. That's the story of the movie, right? And the reason I wanted to start there is because I think there is a little overlap between that reality and the movie of Elf and our world that we find ourselves in following Jesus. Here's what I mean. I grew up in an incredible home, heard the gospel at a young age, but didn't really begin following Jesus until I was a freshman in college. And I remember I was in a fraternity at the time, and I was looking around and realizing, man, no one else is doing this. Like, no one is taking their faith super seriously. And it kind of felt like I was doing God a favor because I was following him. And so surely in response to that, my expectation was that God was going to make my life great. And he was going to bless me and just make it smooth sailing and easy and comfortable and just like all my dreams would come true. And I just learned really quickly that that is not reality. At least it wasn't mine. I remember I started reading my Bible, and I would read things like the promises that God had for me, things like the assurance of my victory over sin. And I would claim the promises into my life and make audacious claims before the Lord. I'm never doing that sin again. And then a week later, I would. And I was just smacked in the face with reality. We are studying the book of 1 Peter as a church, and in that book, we hear things about us that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, God's special possession. And yet it feels like, as Christians, we're becoming increasingly more irrelevant and increasingly outsiders in our secular world, and sometimes that doesn't feel special at all. Or maybe even in this season of Advent, Josh preached on peace. Jay will preach on joy in the weeks to come. And you know as well as I know that if there's ever a season that our life should be marked by peace and should exude joy, it's this one, right? The Christmas season. And maybe for whatever reason, maybe tragedy or drama among relatives and the family, this season doesn't feel like it, it, it exudes peace and joy, but rather chaos or hurt and uncertainty. I guess what I'm trying to say, to make it visual, is what are you and I to do when reality feels like it doesn't live up to God's promises or my expectations? 
and I stress that feels like. What are we to do when reality feels like it's just not living up to what we thought it would be? Jesus has good news. I believe Advent has good news because I think that in this tension, in this wrestle that is real life, I believe lies the invitation of hope, the invitation of hope. And so that is what we're going to be talking about today, the advent of hope. And if I could just speak it over us, my hope and my prayer for us is that we would leave not with a naive optimism like Buddy, who just thought life was all sunshines, right? But with real hope grounded in Jesus that helps us transcend reality that we live in. And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to look at God's word together. Father, uh, thank you that you are our hope, that you give us hope, uh, that we can find hope in you. I pray that you'd be here with us. I pray as we open your word and we look at it, you would have something for each of us in our journey through real life as we try to put our hope in you. I love you. Amen. We are going to be looking at Romans 8, and so most of our time is going to be spent in Romans 8. I'm going to have it on the screen. You're welcome to follow along there. I'm reading from the NIV for a reason. I'll tell you here in a second. Follow me on the screen. Romans 8, starting in verse 18, here's what Paul says. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. I have three points for us about hope today from the scripture. This one pulled directly from this passage of scripture, and that is that if we are in Christ, and so if we've trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, we have a hope in future glory. Hope in future glory. And so Romans 8, if we jump back up to the top of that, of verse 18, here's what Paul says. I consider... Our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. And so hope in future glory, Paul says the glory that will be revealed. If we are going to understand hope in future glory, we have to understand what glory means in this context. And that's a little tricky. I was thinking about this. You can think about this. It's like we've all heard the word glory, but if I asked you to define it, it's like that's a little tricky. Sometimes the Bible uses the word glory as like a synonym of praise. And so we give God glory, we glorify, that's like a synonym of praise. But in this situation, glory means something different, all right? And it's a little tricky. The best way I know to explain it is that glory is a state of being. It's like a state that God exists in. And so unlike a quality such as holiness or goodness, those are qualities that describe God. Glory is a state of being that God exists in. He exists in glory. 
And his glory connotes his power, his perfection, his majesty, and his splendor. If I could sum it up in four words, I didn't get that from a Bible verse. It's just me and my study. I think his power, his perfection, his majesty, his splendor. That is the essence of God's glory. And what Paul is saying is that this glory is going to be revealed in such a way as to give you and I hope amidst present sufferings. And so the question is, how is the glory going to be revealed? How is it going to be revealed? Some translations uh, translate this preposition after the word revealed to the word to. So the ESV translates it to. So the glory will be revealed to us. And if you think about it, that is incredible. God's glory, his power, perfection, majesty, splendor revealed to us, that is astonishing. I think of Moses in uh, Exodus in the, on the mountain of Sinai. And he asks God, God, show me your glory. And God hides him in a cleft and he passes by and he shows him only his backside because if anyone were to see the face of God in all his glory, they would die. That is the magnified nature of this glory. It would be incredible if our hope was solely grounded on the fact that it will be revealed to us. But the reason I chose this translation is because I think this one word is actually so much better. And it hints at a promise that is ours, true throughout the entire library of scripture, that is so much better. And that's that the glory will not just be revealed to us, God's glory will be revealed in us. The idea is that if we are in Jesus, when we step into glory, and so when we return home to Jesus or he comes back for us, we will be made fully like him, sharing in his power, perfection, majesty, and splendor. His glory will be ours, and we will be made glorified just like he is, okay? That is incredible news. If we jump down to 23, uh, Paul builds that out into kind of two categories of what will this glory practically look like, two outworkings. And so if you want to flip the slide, verse 23, we see that the two outworkings are adoption to sonship, in the redemption of our bodies. And so when we are made glorified, sharing in his glory, there's two things that become true of us. Adoption to sonship, redemption of our bodies. Adoption to sonship just means full communion with God and his family. And so as opposed to today where we have this kind of fractured adoption and fractured communion due to sin, in glory we will be made fully into the family of God, sharing in communion with him perfectly, with no sin. And then the redemption of our bodies. Paul, in another scripture, talking about this same idea, 1 Corinthians 15, here's how he puts the redemption of our bodies. He says, the body that is sown, the body that we have today, is perishable. But it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. And then track with me on these, this paragraph, a little hard to understand, but I'm going to explain it. It says, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last man, Jesus, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. 
the first man, Adam, was of the dust of the earth, and the second man, Jesus, is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have been born in the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. A.K.A., what he is saying is that on earth, we are like Adam. We're prone to sin and to struggle and to suffering and to death. That is the, the life that we know. That's reality. But in heaven, coming soon, one day, we will be made fully like Jesus, sharing in his glory. The redemption of our bodies, adoption to sonship, this is the hope and future glory. Romans 8 makes it clear that this hope isn't just ours. In fact, it goes on and on. Many of the verses in this passage are talking about how all of creation, not just us, not just human beings, all of creation are groaning inwardly waiting for this redemption, waiting for this glory that's going to be revealed. The picture is that creation was subjected to frustration when sin entered the world, and so when Adam and Eve chose to sin, all of creation was now fractured and subjected by sin. It's the reason why things die and why there's famine and natural disaster, right? It doesn't take a scientist to know that we live in a broken world. That is a product of the fall, a product of sin. But all of creation is groaning inwardly, waiting, like Advent, waiting for things to be made new and for Jesus to return and bring his glory, culminating in you and I, the saints, being glorified in Christ. It's the hope and future glory. Paul says this is the hope that we were saved in. In this hope we were saved. That God saved us from our sin. That's called justification. When we were made right before God, justification. And then every day since then, as we've been trying to walk with Jesus, that is sanctification. Trying to become more like him. And there is coming a day soon when all will be made new. When Revelation says, all the tears will be wiped away from our eyes. Death will be no more glorification, where we will be made like him in glory, the hope of future glory. And so you might be sitting there going, man, that is cool, like cool promise. But what does it have to do with today? Like life is still hard. I still have to pay bills. What does it have to do with today? It doesn't change anything tomorrow. And I would say, because I think this is what Paul is saying, that there is such a way as to hope in future glory, to believe that this is a biblical truth about your life in such a way that it actually changes tomorrow. I think of even just two weeks ago, probably. I, uh, I'm married to Danielle. Many of y'all know that. Danielle, uh, over the last few years, has just had some stomach problems. And so she is totally okay but it just feels like she's had these stomach problems and she goes to doctors and we get more questions than answers. And it's just discouraging. It just takes a toll on her physical state, on her emotional state. It's just tough. We were talking about it a few weeks ago as she was preparing for some more doctor's visits. And just through tears, through tears, my sweet wife says to me, Brayden, I think I've just made peace that I might never be healthy this side of eternity. My body might never work like it, like I think it should. But then she said, but one day I will be. And in this real way, in this tangible way, hope in future glory, 
prompted peace and love and faith in her life. It was a hope that didn't just, it wasn't this ethereal idea that one day affects us. No, it was a hope that actually empowered faith and love and joy in her life today. And so when we are rejected for following the way of Jesus, or when we experience tragedy and despair and heartache that's inevitable with life, hope and future glory, there is coming a day soon when all will be made right with Jesus. So all of my points have a little application after them, and this is pulled directly from the text. Uh, At the end, this is how Paul ends that little passage in Romans 8. He says, who hopes for what they already have? If we hope for what we don't yet have, we don't have it yet, then we wait for it patiently. And so we hope in future glory, and my application is, and so we wait. We wait. We wait for the day when Jesus is going to make it all right. We hope in future glory, and so we wait. My second point is not only do you and I, if we are in Christ, have hope in future glory that there's coming a day that all will be made right, we also have hope in present providence. Hope in present providence. A few verses later, three verses later in this Romans 8 passage, we come to Romans 8.28. It's a common uh, verse. Maybe you've probably heard it. This is what Paul says. He says, in all, or we know, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Paul says, in all things, in all circumstances, in all trials, in everything that we go through, God works for the good of those who love him and who are living according to his purposes. The idea is that God is with us, he is in control, and he is good. He is working all things for our good if we love him and if we are living according to his purposes. Now, this is an incredible promise. I mean, tons of people love this verse because Duh, it sounds awesome, right? Like God is working all things for our good. That is awesome news. However, it's also a promise that can be quickly misunderstood or misinterpreted in how it actually plays out in our life. And here's how I think we do that. We confuse our definition of that word good with God's definition of that word good. And so we claim what we think is good in our own life and surely God should do that. And then we make expectations that he doesn't meet. Here is an example from the Bible. So uh, the Old Testament is all about this nation of Israel, right? And their up and down uh, journey of trying to follow God and put him on display to the world. In between the Old Testament and the New Testament is 400 years of silence. Maybe you knew that. And so God kind of shuts his mouth and there's 400 years where Israel, the nation that God chose, does not hear from God. And all Israel knows to do for those 400 years is to hope and wait in anticipation. It's literally where we got Advent. They hope and anticipate the coming of their future Messiah that's been promised to them. Only problem is, during this 400 years, the kingdom of Rome has risen to power and has taken over the nation of Israel. And so Israel is living under oppression politically and economically under the heavy hand of Rome. And so what Israel is thinking is going to be good, as they're defining good for themselves, is, man, this Messiah is going to come, and he's going to be in the line of David, and he's going to rise up just like David to be this fierce king, 
to overthrow the kingdom of Rome, waging war on Rome and restoring Israel to our place of power and authority back in the world like we deserve. That is literally what Israel thought the Messiah would be. And instead, Israel got a baby born in a manger who grew up to wage war not against the kingdom of Rome, but against the kingdom of darkness. And who waged war not politically or economically, but against sin and death. A Messiah whose claim was not to a throne, but to the cross as he died for our sin and rose again three days later. And literally the Israelites, the Jews, were the ones that killed Jesus because he didn't meet their expectation of how they would have defined good, right? And we run the same risk. Hope in present providence does not mean we hope that God's going to make all our circumstances change to be how we would define good. It's hoping in the God that is with us in our circumstances, that he's in control, and that he has a plan. It's hoping in that. If I could make uh, maybe just one more point on this hope in present providence, just from the authority of my own life or my own experience, it would be this. The next verse after Romans 8.28 talks about how we are being formed into the image of the Son, into the image of Jesus. Now, sometimes, as I look back at times in my life that I don't understand what God's doing, and it's like I'm in this circumstance, and it's like, God, what could you be doing here? Sometimes, God is doing things out here that I just can't see yet. And maybe I'll look back and I'll acknowledge, man, he really was working all things for the good out there. But so much more often... It feels like so much more often than God is doing things out here, as I look back, God was doing things in here, helping me be formed into the image of the Son, into the image of Jesus. And so maybe the question that we should be asking isn't always, what is God doing, but rather, who am I becoming? Because God works all things for the good of those who love him, helping us be formed into the image of Jesus. That is the hope in present providence. He is with us, he's in control, and he is good. Hope in present providence. Uh, we hope in future glory, which prompts us to wait. And so we wait. Our hope in present providence prompts us to trust. We have hope in present providence, and so we trust. We trust that he's good. And that he's got a plan. And it might not be yours, might not be mine, but he's got a plan. Quick story to illustrate this that I'm just so inspired by. Uh, this is a woman named Johnny Erickson Tada. I recently learned about her in her ministry, and I've just kind of, as I was preparing for this sermon, I just kind of went down the rabbit hole of watching everything she's ever put out and like blogs and talks and radio shows, all the things. Johnny became a Christian when she was in high school, a long time ago. After she graduated high school, right before college, she was hanging out with friends, and she dove into shallow water. And as she came up and surfaced from the water, she was a paraplegic. And so she cracked a bunch of vertebrae in her spine, and she lost all control of her legs and her hands, and she is a paraplegic. And this just crushed her. 
as a believer, she remembers night after night after night, crying to the Lord, praying, Lord, just let me die. I can't live like this. In depression at her circumstances. And as Johnny tells the story, the only response that she received from the Lord came in the form of one word, and that was wait. And so day after day, morning after morning, hour after hour, Johnny came to Jesus, and she tried to put her hope in him, and he sustained her. Johnny would go on to start a ministry that is called Johnny and Friends. And Johnny and Friends has literally helped minister to hundreds of thousands of people with disabilities and has shared the gospel with millions and millions of people across the globe. I Like she is in uh, radio shows and on TV specials sharing the gospel of Jesus with millions of people. It is unquantifiable the kingdom impact that Johnny's life has had. And today she is 74. 56 years since the accident, 56 years living in the wheelchair with no control of her legs and arms. And it is inspiring to read and listen to the things that she has to say about her hope in Jesus. Her hope in future glory and that Johnny's body doesn't work right today. But coming a day soon, it will. And she will run with Jesus on all the hills of heaven, and she will meet her Savior and King face to face in glory. And her hope in present providence, that God was with her through it all. In fact, read this quote that Johnny has to say about her life. She says, what I thought was the ruin of my life, breaking my neck, was the beginning of God's greatest use of my life. He chose the thing I despised for his glory, and that to me is amazing grace. That is a woman that learned hope. Her tagline motto of her ministry is that God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. There's hope. Hope in present providence. God is with us. He's good. He's in control. And so we have hope in future glory. We have hope in present providence. And my final point as we move toward landing the plane is that all hope hinges on Advent. All hope hinges on Advent. Now, there are many places that we could go to in the scripture to talk about how hope is tied to Advent. Jesus is coming. But I kind of want to talk through a story that we're all familiar with that at first glance, it's like, oh, is that about Advent? But it kind of backdoors Advent, and I think it's this beautiful picture of hope And that is the creation story. And so we're primarily going to be looking at Genesis 3, uh, the creation story. And so to catch everyone up, like we know this, but God creates the world. It's good, right? That's his opinion of it. It's good. He creates mankind in his image to fill the earth, to populate it, and to rule and reign over it in his glory. He puts him in a garden, and in the garden he puts a tree, and he tells him don't eat from the tree because love demands a choice, and God gives his people a choice. And Adam and Eve, deceived by the serpent, do exactly what we do, choose sin and selfishness. And now we find ourselves with uh, the picture and the harmony of God's good world and his good creation and his good mankind. The harmony is broken because sin has entered the cosmos. 
that's where we're going to jump into the story. It's Genesis 3. We're actually going to, I have a bunch of verses on the screen, but we're just going to kind of sum up most of them. Basically, Adam and Eve start hiding, right? Because they're feeling the fear, they're feeling the shame. And I think it sometimes helps to like get with them in that story. And so all of us have had a moment where we feel guilt and shame, right? Maybe we're caught cheating or stealing or doing something we shouldn't have been doing. We have a moment where we have felt this too. This is that moment times a thousand, right? Because you, in the moment you're thinking of when you felt that, your whole life you felt negative emotions. You were born and you were feeling fear and guilt and shame. Adam and Eve have literally never felt anything negative ever. Sin enters the world and all of the sudden there is an influx of fear and guilt and shame. And so they hide. God comes walking through the garden and then he calls this little powwow between Satan, Adam, Eve, and he starts handing out consequences because sin always deserves consequences. Let's look at verse 14 if you want to jump to the next slide. Uh, verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, here starts the consequences. Because you have done this, next slide, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. He says to Satan, you'll crawl on your belly, you'll eat the dust all the days of your life. And so he starts handing out these consequences. Then he says in verse 15, this is where we're going to focus our time. In verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, Eve, between your offspring and her offspring. And so enmity just means conflict. And so what God's saying is, hey, I'm going to put conflict between Satan and his offspring and Eve and her offspring. Well, who are Satan and his offspring? Does he mean like little baby snakes? No. Satan's offspring is all of sin and evil and darkness in our world, right? All of the kingdom of darkness, sin, evil, darkness. And Eve's offspring is all of mankind. It's all the human beings that would follow after her. And so what God is saying is because sin has entered the world, because we chose not to follow my way and to eat of the fruit, all mankind will now wrestle in tension with sin and evil and darkness. That is the life we find ourselves in, right? That's reality. Then he says this really weird thing. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now the really glaringly obvious question is like, who is this he? Adam's the only dude in the story, and so it's like, you might be prone to think, oh, Adam? Well, like, does Adam just get brought in? The fascinating thing is this is not about Adam. Here's how we know. So he is a pronoun. Track with me for this. He's a pronoun. In English, in our English language, pronouns are ambiguous, and so they're hard to understand who they're talking about. Here's an example. If I were to say an example sentence like this, I play fantasy football with some guys at this church. Jeremy's in the league, Jay's in the league, Kitten's in the league, other people are in the league, and you can never trust one of his trades. He is a slimy snake. Now, if you're in, if you're in our fantasy football league, well, then you undoubtedly know that I am talking about Jay. Everyone knows that. But if you are not in our fantasy football league, you would have no way of knowing who is the he, right? Because it's ambiguous. He could be Jeremy or Jay or Kenton or any of them. It's ambiguous. You don't know. In Hebrew, that is not the case with their language. And so this pronoun he directly connects to a noun, 
And the noun is her offspring, Eve's offspring. And that's so interesting. Eve's offspring is described as this he who's going to rise up and crush the head of Satan. What God is saying is he's foreshadowing the gospel that from Eve, from mankind and all of creation or all of uh, human beings is coming a he. And this he is going to rise up against the evil and the sin that Adam and Eve are experiencing in this moment in the garden and that all of us experience every day of our life. There is a he that is coming that's going to crush the head of Satan. And my favorite verse in this story, it's one I think we often overlook. Verse 20, after all the punishments are handed out in the heat of the shame and guilt and the depravity that Adam and Eve now feel, right? That we've all felt too. Adam named his wife Eve, which your Bible will probably say means living or a better translation I like is life. And so in the heat of all the sin and the brokenness, And the depravity, Adam looks at his wife and says, life. Because all he knows is that from her is coming a he that is going to make all things right. And the brokenness they're feeling, the pain they're feeling, the sin they're experiencing, he is going to crush the head of the serpent. And Adam and Eve never could have known, but thousands of years later, born in a manger, in a little town called Bethlehem, he came. Jesus the Messiah came. And he lived a perfect life, not in enmity with Satan, but in perfection before the Father, something you and I could not do. And he went to the cross willingly in our place, paying the punishment that you and I deserve. And three days later, he rose again, crushing the head of Satan and all of sin and darkness. He came and he is coming again. And when he comes again, all things will be made new. All of our hope hinges on this truth, that Jesus came and he's coming again. If Jesus did not come, if he had not come, there is no hope at all, nothing to hope for in this life. All of our hope and future glory and present providence, it hinges on the fact that Jesus came. That is the hope of Advent. And so in conclusion, you and I, if we are in Christ, if we're in his family, actually, you know what? I forgot to say that. Our last application (laughs) the last application is that hope hinges on Advent. And so we wait, we trust, and we worship. The response to the fact that Jesus came is that we worship him and we wait and trust him until he comes again. Now, in conclusion, (laughs) uh, we have hope in future glory. We have hope in present providence and all of it is tied to Advent. If you are a believer in the room, a follower of Jesus, again, I just want to speak this over us, is that this shouldn't give us naive optimism, like Buddy, of like, oh, life's going to be great, and don't worry about anything, and don't wear seatbelts, and no, it's like, that is not what hope does. It does ground us, though. 
in a deep reality that is true of us and true of all of human history that this is where this thing is going. He's going to return and it's going to be made new. And that gives us hope that affects us today. And as I was thinking about it, I, all the other qualities of Advent, peace and joy and love, hope grounds all of them. Like the anchor that allows us to experience peace and joy and hope or in love, hope is the anchor that lets us experience it. And so my hope for you and my prayer for you is that in a tangible way this week, you would walk in hope. And not like Buddy, but in real hope that transcends reality. And if you are not a follower of Jesus in the room, if you haven't yet made a decision to follow him, to trust in him for the forgiveness of, his, of your sins and to follow his way of life, then this is the invitation is that in a world that often falls short and has pain and struggle and all the things that you know as well as I do, you can hope in something that is eternal. And in, in someone who came for you, lived a perfect life in your place, and died the death that you deserve, just to rise again and give you hope for eternity. We hope in future glory, hope in present providence. All our hope hinges on Advent. Let's pray. Father, thanks for today, another day, uh, the gift of life that we get to hope in you and hope in your return, God, when all things are going to be made new. Lord, I pray that you would use the word that we got to read and your spirit that is alive in this place to inspire in us hope, that you are our hope in life and death, our living hope, Jesus. I pray that that would be real and tangible and practical to us this week. Uh, and for those who are wrestling with following you and putting their hope in other things, God, would you just bring us to an awareness of ways that that might fall short or that other hopes might fail us? And would you inspire the courage and the faith to trust and hope in you alone? Uh, only you can do it. I love you. Amen.